All right, everybody, welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. We have just ended our series on the best golf comedies of all time, and now we are about to begin a new series. We are starting one of the coolest six-week deep dives that I can think of. It's going to be all about the summer of 1984. We have frequently talked about what year is the most 80s year of all 80s years, and Jason, I think you have said 1984. I am spiking the football. It's 1984. Okay, so if we go back in time to 1984, if I'm a kid in 1984, I could have gone to the movie theater and watched 16 Candles, yeah, Gremlins, Top Secret, Romancing the Stone, Red Dawn, Revenge of the Nerds, Beverly Hills Cop, Police Academy. I mean, these are the most iconic of iconic. Terminator, The Last Starfighter. I mean, wow. Ghostbusters. I mean, it's it. it the but, most iconic 80s movies. Yeah, and, and you're talking music-wise, you're talking about When Doves Cry by Prince, you've got What's Love Got to Do With It from Tina Turner. Yeah. You've got Footloose, you've got Against All Odds, you've got the Van Halen albums. I mean, oh my gosh. you've got Huey Lewis Sports. That that whole summer was amazing. So our attempt today will be to take you back to that time as we begin by comparing two albums that were at the top of the charts in the summer of 1984. Huey Lewis and the News, Sports, and Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Two super iconic albums. Yeah. So here we are. We're comparing these two incredible albums of two guys whose names are followed with and the band. Right. Right. You've got Huey Lewis and the news and you've got Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yes. Right. They both got saxophone players. They're both gravelly voiced, not traditional of the time sounding guys, but they were killing it at the time. That's exactly right. And these albums were their biggest success of their recording career up until that point. Yeah. Biggest sellers for sure. Okay. This episode, our executive producers are Chris and Jeannie Alexander. Yeah. Chris and Jeannie are some of my oldest friends in the world. Chris was the best man at my wedding. He was in the nursery with me at my church. And Jeannie is one of my wife's oldest friends. Her college roommate, and so we ran around together at OU, and some of my dearest friends in the world, Chris and Jeannie, thank you so much for being Patreon and just supporting our podcast. We love you guys and are very, very thankful. Jeannie came up in the U2 episode, right? She knows her stuff, man. (laughs) She knows her stuff. She is a big U2 fan. Well, if you want to be an executive producer of our podcast, be sure and visit our Patreon page. It's as cheap as a cup of coffee a month to become an executive producer of one of our episodes, so be sure and go check that out. All right. We're going to start off this comparison by talking about Bruce Springsteen and Born in the USA. And then next we'll talk about Huey Lewis and the news and sports. I can't wait. Okay. Do you have any personal feelings about Born in the USA? So I was one of those kids who thought originally that Born in the USA is like this big fist pumping, patriotic, I love America songs. Wrong. I know. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And well, it's not like they were, I mean, they did everything they could to fool you about the, the, the content of the song. But yeah, that's, that. It, I was, in revisiting, I'm like, oh, well, big misunderstanding here. Yeah. And, and so I, I definitely knew this album. I, I was familiar, especially with the videos. Uh-huh. So for me, I, I grew up a baseball player. I love Glory Days. I love that video. Yeah. The idea of being a rock star baseball player is very appealing. Yeah. I, I mean, talk about reaching your target audience by being the guy who's just throwing some balls at a board at the local park. He nailed it. He nailed his blue collar demographic. 
Yeah. Before we get going, I just want to point something out. We have been talking to each other now for a couple of years face to face. And one of the reasons that I can do that is because you don't have nose hair. <laughs> have you been talking to people and like you can't even concentrate on what they're saying because of their nose hair? Absolutely. They like talk to you. They like dangle. <laughs> it dangles. Yes, it wiggles. It's it's a total distraction. Absolutely. And so let me let me say, if you are one of those guys, we have a product that is supporting the podcast that you need to check out. It's called the Weed Whacker and it is from Manscaped. It is an amazing product. It trims your nose hair. It's not embarrassing. You just stick it up there. It takes care of it. You're not going to look at people and bother them. Right. And I'm one of those guys who's self-conscious about my nose hair. So somebody that you're going to see me and I'm going to be like yanking them out and wincing in pain. <laughs> Don't do that. There is a special thing that they make. And they've also just released, in addition to the Weed Whacker, they have just released something called the lawnmower. If you have other areas of your body that you're looking to trim up. And I'd like to point out that a giraffe is easier to see in the plains than it is in the forest. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yes, yes it is. So, and it's very, it's very good around sensitive areas, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, they have also an entire shave kit called the Ultra Smooth Package. Package. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea, so... Who it, doesn't want their package ultra smooth? Right, right. So, don't forget to go to manscaped.com and use the promo code FANSIDED20 to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Whack it. <laughs> Perfect. So let's talk history of Mr. Springsteen, shall we? Yes, let's go. Okay, so September 23rd, 1949, young Bruce Springsteen is born in Long Beach, New Jersey. His family is a blue-collar family, right. you know, scraping by. His dad goes through multiple jobs. He's a prison worker. He's a bus driver. He works at a factory. And knowing this kind of history, to say that Bruce is kind of political in his songs might be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, he definitely is. And we don't get political on this podcast, but you can certainly tell that his upbringing formed his politics, which then formed the stories behind a lot of these songs. But interestingly, Bruce himself never worked in a factory, never worked on the highway, <laughs> never had a real job in his life. He was always a musician. Yeah. And he was inspired to do that back in 1955-ish, six maybe, when he saw a guy on TV swinging his hips and girls screaming their heads off, Mr. Elvis Presley. Yes. Yeah. So he decides at that moment, I've got to be a rock and roll star. And he convinces his mom to rent him a guitar. They do not have enough money to buy a guitar. So she rents him a guitar for something like 25 bucks a week. And he's terrible. <laughs> I mean, he's just a little kid. He's like, right. I think he's, he's six, seven years old at sure. this point. And so she rents him this kind of crappy guitar and it quickly becomes apparent that he needs to get rid of the guitar like there's not that he's not learning to play it and so he knows at some point that he's got to part with this thing that he's treasured for these two weeks right and so he goes out in the backyard and does a concert for his you know nine and ten year old friends and swings his hips and shakes his booty and plays not chords and everybody's laughing and loving it and he's like someday someday Nice. So someday comes a few years later at the age of 16. He tells his mom, this, by the way, we've hit the British invasion at this point. Okay. Right? You yep. got the Beatles, you got the Stones. Yeah. And so he tells his mom, if you can get me an electric guitar, I can get a job. He and his dad didn't really get along very well. He and his mom got 
along much better. And Christmas Day, she ends up buying him a cheap Japanese, barely tunable, one pickup electric guitar, a Kent. Yeah, I've never heard of it either. I'm sorry, um, did you say Kmart's? <laughs> something like that, <laughs> yes. And it is the greatest Christmas present he has ever got. I heard him talk about this. He said the immense investment that it took to buy this guitar, he said it cost $60. Yeah. And he had never seen $60 in one place at one time. Yeah. It blew his mind. Right. And so he's determined to make this a success. He immediately joins up with a band called the Castiles, and they pretty quickly record a 45, a couple of songs. Okay. He and one of the other band members write as they're driving to the recording <laughs> studio. Nothing like pressure. Yeah. Well, you know, hey, it worked for NXS, right? Yeah. And by the time he's 18, the Vietnam War is in full bloom and he gets his draft card. Right. And so he has to go to the local doctor and his dad in his past, when they would have their fights, he's like, boy, I can't wait till the army gets a hold of you. They're going to make a man out of you. And that was kind of before all of Vietnam was happening. And so he comes back from his doctor visit. His dad's like, well, how'd it go? And he says, well, I'm a 4F, which means he failed it. Like he deliberately gave him answers that he knew would cause him not to be draftable. Right. And his dad's response is, well, I think that's probably good. So year later, his family decides to move out to California for better job prospects, and Bruce stays in New Jersey. He's, he thinks, if I can play at these clubs in Asbury Park, I can make a name for myself. And so he stays. Unfortunately, at that time, the clubs in Asbury Park only wanted bands that were playing top 40 music, and Bruce is trying to write original stuff. They weren't really interested in original work. The exception to this rule was this place called the Upstage Club. And it's this place that welcomed musicians playing original music. And so you could go in, start playing at nine, probably not get done playing until 5 a.m. And you'd get a whopping five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, per hour, that would be, uh, yeah, not very much. Not very much, right. And I don't know what it was back then. I don't know what minimum wage was back then, but that's not even an hour of minimum wage now, right? Right. And so if you happen, though, to get a job there as a club musician, then one night of play could get you $15. Woo! Yeah. So one of the club musicians was this kid named Steve Van Zant. Little Stevie yeah. Van Zant. Yeah. Um, he managed to get a job as a club musician there. And that's where he and Bruce ultimately crossed paths. So Bruce has several bands during this time, one called Earth, one called Child, one called Steel Mill, one called the Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. And so that's how he and Steve cross paths. In 1972, so just a couple years later, he's been playing the music scene. This guy named Mike Appel notices him and thinks he's got potential. And Mike has him sign in like parking lot sign on the hood of a car, a management agreement. Mike's claim to fame up to that point is that he had written a song for the Partridge family. That was his, <laughs> that was his big connection with the music industry, but it's bigger than anybody else had that Bruce knew. So he was like, you know, why not? So he's a 21, 22 year old kid signing this multi-page agreement with this guy. Yep. But Mike Appel does get Bruce an audition with John Hammond, who's one of the key management at Columbia Records. Bruce goes in and sings Mary Queen of Arkansas. Bruce Springsteen, Columbia Pop Audition, job number 79682. Mary Queen of Arkansas, take one. 
and John says, you belong on Columbia Records. So they go through this, and at some point, John Hammond pulls Bruce aside, and he says, listen, this deal that you've got with Mike Capel is not a good deal. It's, you, you, you need to try to get out of it. But out of loyalty, Bruce stuck with Mike. He would regret that decision. Yeah, yeah. So Columbia thought that Bruce was kind of a folk singer. He has a very Bob Dylan style. I mean, if we want to talk about word smithery, if that's a word, <laughs> he's got it right. I mean, he has an amazing way to find those words that trigger nostalgia, emotion, just an amazing ability with words. But he wanted to record a rock record. He didn't want to be a folk singer. He wanted I, to be a rock singer, right? I can see where people would be like, hey, this guy reminds me about Dylan. Yeah. There are similarities there. I'm glad that he decided to go, let's make a rock and roll record. Right. So what he decides to do is go back to Asbury Park, pick up some friends from Jersey that included Vinny, Mad Dog Lopez, Gary Talent, Danny Federici, and Dave Sanchez, and future most important person in the world, Clarence Clements. <laughs> Flashback, Bill and Ted episode. Yeah. So here's the story on Clarence Clemens, right? Yeah. So Clarence Clemens had, had been playing in the same area of town that Bruce had been playing in for, okay. for a while. He had gotten easy jobs as soul musician. It was, you know, black and white were very separate at that time. And he didn't really want to play that. He was a rocker. He wanted to play rock music. He ended up with this other band and was playing rock music covers with them. And a girl in the band was like, you've got to meet my friend, Bruce. You guys would get along so well that you couldn't, you need to play together. And so he'd heard that for several months, but they were always playing at the same time, never got a chance to meet each other. And one night this big storm happens. I think it knocks out the power at the club that Clarence is playing at. And he thinks, okay, I'm going to go down and see if I can meet this Bruce guy. So it's pouring down rain, lightning, wind is horrible. He walks the few blocks down to the club. He opens the door. And as he opens the door, the wind like blows the door. Off. <laughs> okay. So that's his perspective on it. But I can imagine the perspective of everybody inside the bar when this six foot four giant black man at this white club opens the door to thunder and lightning blasting behind him. And it looks as like he's ripping the door off, <laughs> throwing it down the street. And so he comes in and he's like, I want to sit in. And Bruce says, OK. And they fall in love with each other. That's fantastic. Let's talk about how they got the band name, the E Street Band. OK. One of the guys... In the band, lived on E Street. Yes. I, I don't remember who it was. I, I think it was Dave Sanchez, but I don't really, I'm not sure. One of those guys lived on E Street, so why not call it the E Street hey, Band? I'm just here to pass on knowledge. It's a great band name. The E Street Band. Yeah. I mean, as long as there's a somebody before it. <laughs> Huey Lewis and the E Street Band. Hey, I grew up in a town where you had A Street, B Street, C Street. I swear. Yeah. D Street. So I understand. There you go. And their first album was appropriately called Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Of course, immediately comparisons start getting made between Bruce and Bob Dylan in sure. the music reviews. Right. But the critics kind of tear it up and it's not a big commercial success. Later that year, they come out with their second album, which is called The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. This one actually got rave reviews by the critics. Uh -huh. They really loved it, but it's long and not remotely commercial. Yeah. It's, yeah. Nothing is going to be getting played on the radio, which means you're not going to have a lot of album sales. Yes. So record company, of course, 
starting to scratch their head a little bit and tap their fingers. Right. Fortunately, Bruce has the ability to put on an incredible live show. He is notorious even still for doing like three hour long shows that are full energy the whole time. He would do these live shows and his fan base keeps on growing and growing. And at some point, this music critic from Rolling Stone magazine named John Landau comes in to see one of his shows. And after seeing his show, he writes in Rolling Stone, I've seen the future of rock and roll. And it is Bruce Springsteen. That's fantastic. I think we need to put a pin in that guy's name because he's going to show up later. Yeah. Yes, he is. Importantly. Yes. So at that point, Bruce is really struggling, but he writes and records this song called Born to Run. Everyone sees the potential for this to be an incredible hit. Like it is, his style is not one that's radio friendly, but this song definitely is. And Mike Appel even like sneaks copies of this song to pro Bruce Springsteen radio stations there in New Jersey. And the following continues to grow and grow but he doesn't have an album to go along with it. And then his team starts to fall apart. Mad Dog leaves. He's replaced by this guy named Boom Carter, but then Dave Sanchez, who is probably the best musician in the group, leaves and he takes Boom Carter with him. So he's lost two drummers and his best musician in a span of just a few months. And then he runs across this guy who I think is a key to the album that we're going to talk about in just a bit. Okay. His name is Max Weinberg. Okay. Okay. So you've heard the name Max Weinberg before. I have. Yeah, because you probably have seen him on Conan O'Brien, right? I have. Right. So that guy was the replacement drummer that ended up being the drummer for the E Street Band. He had been playing with this group. He's just in college at the time and still living at home. But he had been playing with for this group called the Jim Marino Band that was a support for Springsteen's band at Seton Hall. So when Bruce puts out an ad of, hey, we need a new drummer... He's all about it, right? And this is what it says in the newspaper ad. It's It says, no junior Ginger Bakers. <laughs> so Ginger Baker was the drummer for Cream, and he was notorious for like these really long, drawn out, big, nice, flamey solos. And they were like, we don't want that guy. We yeah. want straight and narrow drumming. Max is a guy who likes simplistic and ordered drumming. Right. He is in a big showboat. By the way, I sent you a video where it's Max Weinberg in a drum off with his son, Jay Weinberg. Yes. And Jay's the he's the drummer for Slipknot. That's not Max Weinberg kind of drumming. That's right. that's big, big showy drumming. Yes. And they do a swing song in this drum off and it is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You should check it out. Anyway, so he answers the Village Voice ad. He knows he's going to keep his drumming condensed, contained. And Bruce offers them the job at $110 a week. And so he (laughs) quits college, just a few credits shy of degree, and joins the E Street Band. Good choice. So they go to the studio. They start trying to put the album together to go with this song, Born to Run. And Mike Appel insists on producing, but they can't make it sound like it is in Bruce's head. And Bruce is starting to doubt Mike's abilities. So at some point, Bruce has his old friend Steve Van Zant come by. 
And he's like, hey, you want to work with us? And, you know, they're just hanging out initially. It's like, hey, do you want to help us put this album together? And it's like, sure. And that becomes him becoming a member of the E Street Band as uh-huh. time goes on, right? Right. He also brings in, put a pin in it, John Landau, who had said that he was going to be the future of rock and roll to help them get the right sound because they're just struggling. And Landau ends up breaking down a lot of the barriers that were slowing down the progress of the album. And Bruce makes him a co-producer with him and Bruce and Mike Appel. And Mike is pissed he is not pleased right he thinks he's being replaced and as it turned out he was right about that yep the record company starts putting pressure on them because they've been working on this for months they've already put out promotions and advertisements and booked tour and so ultimately they forced this album out july 20th 1975 they finished recording born to run Okay, so one of the things I found interesting about the story behind Born to Run, so Bruce is out to make this great rock song, and he wants something radio-friendly, something to please the record company, and so he comes up with Born to Run. He thinks, man, I've knocked it out of the park with this one. This is a great song, and when he puts it out, it doesn't really catch fire like he wanted it to. Now, if you are a long-distance runner like you and I have been in our past, Born to Run is a part of your playlist. That's just how it is if you're a runner. Right. And it gives you extra legs and it's a great song. But at the time when it came out, it wasn't really that big of a hit. Yeah, it wasn't as big as he wanted. It was still, it was a career maker for him. I mean, it, it was, was, he thought it would be like the best song in the world. It would be a top, number one song. Yeah. It didn't even crack the top 10. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's a success. I mean, he he does have a great deal of, of success because of this album, Born to Run. Um, a few weeks after it gets released, they play a sold out show in New York at this club called The Bottom Line. There were reporters there, music critics there, new fan base there, and he dazzles them all. And within a few weeks, he becomes a superstar. He's on the cover of Newsweek (laughs) and Time Magazine in the same week. Same week! Calls up his dad. He's like, I'm going to be on the cover of Newsweek and Time at the same time, dad. And he's like, his dad's like, well, it's better than another picture of the president, I guess. I heard him talk about this. He said that when he called, he was like, basically, it was the equivalent of telling his dad that he had taken Santa Claus's job at the North Pole. (laughs) (laughs) So the album reaches number three, but Bruce realizes he is not making very much money. Yes. This is a problem. Curious. So he hires an attorney and an accountant to check the books, and he finds out that he doesn't really own the rights to his own songs. Mike Appel, his company, owns those, and Mike is taking a majority of the profits for his company. So Bruce sues Mike. Yep. And then Mike countersues Bruce, and Bruce does not record another album for about three more years. And I mean, he's shooting up like a rocket. Yep. Cover of two pinnacle magazines and then crickets. Yep. And then the magazines start to publish whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen articles. Yeah, that must be very hard. But he wasn't willing to give up control of his music. And so they just continued to fight and he refused to record. Mike Appel stopped him from recording with John Landau through the lawsuit. And so finally, on May 28th, 1977, at three o'clock in the morning, Bruce and Mike settled their lawsuit. Bruce gives up a lot of money. Mike gives up control of the music. Bruce makes John Landau his new manager, and they quickly produce an album. And this album details the difficulties and lessons from that point in life. (laughs) And that album was called Darkness on the Edge of Town. (laughs) 
So he plays countless shows and the three hour long shows and amasses an incredible fan base. He graduates from theaters into playing arenas. And then he goes and he plays the no nukes benefit with some giants from the seventies, like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Carly Simon, but he is the one that steals the show. So he manages to revive his struggling career. Then in 1980 records the album, the river that has a song on it called the river, which was inspired by his sister's unplanned pregnancy. Good song. Yeah. Um, but it also, interestingly, up to this point, as we said, he hasn't cracked, cracked the top 10, but there's a song on this album that breaks that streak. He's got a great top 40 song that's called Hungry Heart. So good. So good. great song. So here's, it's interesting. You listen to that song. You're like, man, he sounds younger. Is his voice a little bit higher? Yeah. 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 They sped up the song. They actually sped up the tempo. I like not just the tempo, like they sped the recording up so that his pitch actually increased. He sang it lower. They sped it up to be higher, faster. And it worked. It did work. It it's, did his work. His vocals sound great. Yeah. So then we've got some time where it's very prolific songwriting time for him, but he's like, He's recording with a cheap tape recorder and a guitar in his garage. Right. And like he'll keep these tapes in his pockets for weeks at a time. <laughs> and then he meets this producer named Chuck Plotkin. And he's like, here are my tapes. And so Chuck Plotkin, incredibly, I mean, he hasn't really done much up until this point. He engineers these pocket tape, cruddy recorder in the garage songs into professional sounding produced songs wow. for the vinyl LP. And that is what you get on the album, Nebraska. Wow, that's incredible. I've not ever heard that story. Yeah. So he goes on a songwriting spree. Yeah, he does. And puts together something like 80 songs and they whittle it down to 11 songs. And he presents those songs to John Landau and John Landau says, you don't have a hit. Right. 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 How many times have we said the yeah, same story over is. and over? Right. And I mean, 80 songs that he's whittled down to 11 and the guy that you've trusted with everything, your manager, your go-to guy says, you don't have a hit. You need to write another song. They, they have a bit of a, a battle. Yeah. He gets mad at him. He says, look, dude, I've written 70 songs. If you want a hit, you write the hit. Yeah. And so Lando gets pissed and he walks out. Yep. Bruce is pissed and he's walking around, blowing off steam. But of course, as all musicians do, he ends up sitting down with the guitar, strums out a chord, strums out another chord, and sings, I get up in the evening and I ain't got nothing to say. And I get up in the evening. Ah, I, to, to hear that story behind that song, it elevated that song on my I Love This Song list. Because if you know the story behind the song, that he's been working and working and beat down and has made himself a prisoner of the career that he longed for and loved. And these are the words that come out from that song. Oh man. So powerful. That's right. It is. It absolutely is. And the fact that this creativity can come out of a fight. I mean, he had a two year battle with his former manager. Plus he just had a fight with his new manager and he's done all this work and he had written like Prince 
levels of songwriting, right? Yeah, he tons even, of songs. He had even considered doing a double album on the deal, like yeah. when, with Nebraska and Born in the USA. All those songs that they were putting together, he had thought about doing a double album. Yes. So most of the songs from the Born in the USA album were written and recorded in 1982. Yeah. Yes. Like seven of the seven of the 12. Yeah. Were recorded together at the same place. And then they recorded the other four and then finally ended up recording the dancing in the dark last. Yes. Yes. I thought it was interesting. The name for the album that he had in mind, Mm -hmm. murder incorporated. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know what that means, but there you go. Okay, and so now he's got these songs. He feels like they've got a hit, potential hit on their hands. Little do they know what's about to come. And so they need a cover for the album. Right. Right? Yep. So you know the photographer, Ann Leibowitz? Annie Leibowitz? Okay, she is a world-famous photographer of musicians. And the picture of Bruce's butt comes from her pictures of him and, and in front of this flag. Yes. Some people thought that the cover was depicting... Bruce urinating on the flag, but he said, no, that was unintentional. We took a lot of different types of pictures. And in the end, the picture of my ass looked better than the picture of my face. (laughs) And so that's what we went on with on the cover. I didn't have any secret message. I didn't do that very much. Now here's the rumor, right? Right. Actually, this is an unconfirmed rumor that uh, when she showed him the picture, he said, no, no, no. See, I I, want to change my clothes, my hair, my face. And she said, okay, let's take a picture of your butt. That is not true. That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk about James Buckley. James Buckley is one of our top, top fans, right? James Buckley has become a friend of ours. Yes. He's one of our Patreons, executive producer. By the way, check out Patreon if you want to be an executive producer of an episode. But James is an attorney and also a drummer. And so I just threw out to him. I'm like, hey, we're comparing Huey Lewis and Bruce Springsteen. What are your thoughts? And he gave his opinion on it. But we started talking about Max Weinberg, right? Because he's a drummer. Uh Uh-huh. And he notes, you know, not only does he gives up the legal career in order to become a rock musician and then, you know, go on to be the musician for a couple of different late night shows. But in listening to the album again, I think Max Weinberg is the key to the success of this album because you have this loud, popping, hooky drum beat that goes along with all of Bruce's somber, dark, deep lyrics and together you have a balance that strikes a chord with a swath of people around the country nice like it a swath a swath (laughs) a swath (laughs) wow all right before we do track by track i've got a couple more things i just want to throw out there while we're talking about it okay so in the mid 80s you had this thing called boss mania like people went crazy for bruce springsteen yep okay yeah I sent you a video of a clip from Growing Pains. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? Yes. Okay. So just the- And I remembered the episode. Once did you I really? Started, oh, yeah. I totally remember the episode. I was a Growing Pains fanatic growing up. <laughs> so yes, I remembered it. So Mike Seaver and his dad, Jason Seaver, uh-huh. go to a Bruce Springsteen concert together. And they it's funny because they're both really into it. Yeah. And then on national TV, Jason Seaver gives Mike a big hug and like, a this noogie. is my guy and gives him a kiss and, and it embarrasses like Mike. Kisses. Yeah. <laughs> but they're having such a good time at the Bruce Springsteen right. concert. Yeah. I thought that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I will say this, they have a big discussion about this and how his dad has embarrassed him. And he's like, well, I thought we we're just having a good time. There's a big conversation that you, that, that I could have with my kid at this point. Sure, right? sure, sure. 
And so you kind of get the idea. And then at the end of the episode, Mike is in this room with all of his friends and they're listening to the stereo pretty loud. And Jason comes in and is like, you guys need to turn it down. We're in the next room, you know, at right. a reasonable level. And it kind of gives him a wink and walks out the door and he starts dancing in, in the kitchen with, with Maggie. And the funny thing is, is the song that they're playing on the radio sounds exactly like Footloose, <laughs> which we will be covering in our summer of 1984 can't wait for that. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to throw out here, this yes. is the, this is a tidbit that I learned yeah. that was like, whoa, I can't believe this. Okay. Yeah. Born in the USA became the first compact disc manufactured in the United States for commercial release. Crazy. It was manufactured in Terre Haute, Indiana in September of 1984. Before that, CDs had been imported from Japan. Wow. First CD manufactured in the US. It was literally... Born in the USA. Wow. (laughs) Good one, man. Good one. Thank you. So tune in next week. We will cover Born in the USA track by track as we plow into our summer of 1984 series. It's going to be amazing. Come back with this. But the critics kind of tore it up. It was not a big commercial success either. Okay. You want to say it without the verb? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, save that for the outtakes. The yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay.